There are a lot of things in travel that seem dangerous but really aren't. Take whitewater rafting. If this were really dangerous, would they do it on corporate retreats? I realized how non-threatening this was when we went whitewater rafting on the Nile. The water was at full churn when our tour guide said, Jump out! I said, What? He said, Jump out! So I did. I was wearing a life vest and I bounced around in the roiling waters like a cork. It was fun. You gotta really work hard to kill yourself whitewater rafting. Each year, two and a half million people try it and less than 10 die. If you crunch the numbers, that means you could whitewater raft every day for a hundred years before you died. And what are you doing rafting when you're a hundred years old? Lie down, Grandpa. Take a nap. An even safer activity is ziplining. These places are popping up everywhere because to build a zipline, all you need is a length of steel cable and one point that's higher than the other point. A mountain and a tree, a tree and a rock, a tall guy and a short guy. The first time you zipline, it's scary. The second time, it's exciting. The third time, it's no big deal. The fourth time your mind wanders, you find yourself thinking, what does a postage stamp cost these days? But climbing a mountain is genuinely dangerous. We visited Zermatt, Switzerland, home of the Matterhorn. It's an amazing sight. God created an exact replica of the Matterhorn at Disneyland. Nonetheless, it's killed 600 people. The mountain, not Disneyland. Zermatt has a special cemetery just for people who died on the Matterhorn. And it's not even that big a mountain. We were climbing one 4,000 feet higher. It was day four of our hike up Kilimanjaro and all hell broke loose. Our guide Anton has us climbing a sheer rock face of cracked boulders. There's no discernible trail. He's just scrambling and zigzagging around like a salamander. I begin to think he's improvising. No tourist has ever made it this far and our guide is forced to ad-lib. All around us our nimble porters are stumbling and falling. There's panic in our guide's eyes. The porter carrying a dozen loaves of Wonder Bread takes a terrific spill. He would have fractured his pelvis were it not cushioned by rubbery white bread. This is all the result of altitude sickness. The air has gotten too thin. Over the past four days, I've had to give up TV, cell phone, internet, coffee, hot showers, cold showers, electric light, electric anything, clean clothes, sex, and toilets. Now they've taken away my oxygen. I need that, man. I also haven't seen a mirror in four days. This is probably a good thing. My beautiful wife now looks like a character from the Grapes of Wrath. I started the trip ugly. By now, I'm a Goya etching. Amazingly, I'm the only one who is not suffering from the altitude. I believe this is because I'm a descendant of Moses. At the age of 150, Moses climbed Mount Sinai, altitude 7,497 feet, where God handed him two heavy stone tablets. Moses schlepped them all the way down, only to smash them in anger at the bottom. So I'm not the first Jew to make a pointless climb up a mountain. It's my non-Jewish wife who is suffering mightily. She's belching and puking from the altitude. At one point she collapses, landing face down on a rock, mouth open. She cracks her three front teeth. I feel awful for her, of course, but this trip was her idea. I wanted to go to Disney World. 
Misery loves company, but it absolutely adores agony. <laughs> Misery can be a real dick. And then, 17,000 feet up, with people collapsing all around me, I hear, Are you Mike Reese? I presumed it was the angel of death. It was actually a stand-up comedian from Brooklyn. He was a huge Simpsons fan, and he recognized me, something that happens approximately never. The man had me cornered on the side of a mountain in Africa. There was no escape. And so, for the next three hours, I used the last of my oxygen, answering questions like, Where is Springfield? And, Why did you kill Maud Flanders? That night, I settled into bed in a tent the size of a fat man's coffin. Tomorrow, I would climb to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. I knew if I got a good night's rest, eight hours, ten hours, I could do it. Two hours later, Anton rapped on my tent flap. It's time to go. Day 5. The final hike to the peak of Kilimanjaro begins at 1 a.m. I'm sure this was on some travel document I never got, listed right after, Bring Rain Pants. The most glorious scenery, the moment the whole week has been building to, and you are expected to do it in bitter cold and pitch darkness. My guess is that it started with a typo. The Tanzanian Tourist Board meant to say 1 p.m., but wrote 1 a.m. by accident, and they've been doing it that way ever since. More likely, some doofus decided it would be super cool to reach the summit at sunrise, because it's not enough to climb Africa's highest peak, to look down into its yawning volcanic crater, to marvel at the snows that inspired a Hemingway novel. No, you need a sunrise, too. Mind you, a sunrise is about the dullest thing the sun does. A solar eclipse is awesome, and a sunset has the decency to come at a pleasant hour. A sunset is also prettier than a sunrise, since the light is refracted through the dust that's been stirred up during the day. Remember in part one of this podcast, I said you'd learn one fact in part two? That was it. Sunsets are prettier than sunrises. We scramble up over another quarter mile of boulders. Day five is just like day four, except we're doing it in the dark. And suddenly the boulders come to an end, giving way to a wide, gently sloping path. I can handle this. I'm gonna saunter up to the peak of the mountain. I'm happy. Just then the path takes a sharp turn, straight up. The last leg of the trip is less a path than a wall. It's a path you can hang art on. I'm Charlie Brown in the football, and Kilimanjaro is my Lucy. I scramble and scratch my way up the trail. This is the worst day of my life, beating out the previous record holder yesterday. I'm depleted, I'm bored, I'm pissed at the mountain. How are you coming? Anton asked. Slowly, slowly, I said. I use the Swahili word, poli-poli. You're going too poli-poli. I struggle onward and upward till I can see the top. I can even make out other hikers at the peak. How long till I get there, I ask Anton. We've already been hiking for five hours. Anton replied, In 45 minutes, you'll be halfway there. And that's when I said it. I quit. After five and a half days of solid hiking, a hundred yards vertically from the top, 98.3% of the way up Kilimanjaro, I quit. My wife elected to go on with the hike, demonstrating the same foolhardy persistence 
that has kept her in this marriage for 33 years. She continued on up with Anton. I went down alone. On the descent, I met three other quitters. It turns out people had been quitting the hike throughout the week. Many bailed after the first day. My vacation had an attrition rate like the Navy SEALs program. I scampered down the mountain like a gazelle, eager to get back to my tent. I took just one break, stretching out on a large flat rock. I looked up at the most beautiful night sky I'd ever seen. Every constellation I could think of was up there shining brightly. The Milky Way glowed like a Broadway marquee. I'd missed this all week. I'd been too busy looking at my feet. I reached my tent around dawn and immediately conked out. I was awakened six hours later as four porters carried my wife into the tent. She looked like a pile of laundry that had been roughed up by the mob, but she'd made it to the peak. So hard. So hard. She croaked. Sensational, but so hard. We'd taken completely different paths, but arrived at amazingly similar conclusions. Quitting that hike was the smartest thing I ever did, I said, next to marrying you. Climbing that mountain was the toughest thing I've ever done, she said, next to getting you to marry me. Then we both fell asleep. It takes 50 hours, five 10-hour days, a Korean work week, to reach the peak of Mount Kilimanjaro. It takes just five hours to climb all the way down. I know down is faster than up, but ten times as fast? Had we been climbing some Escher-like trail, always ascending but never getting higher? After I'd paid Anton and all those porters, he made a confession. The longer we keep you on the mountain, the more money we make. The descent was my favorite part of the trip, and not just because gravity was on my side and I was getting off the damn mountain. It was an inspiring journey as the lifeless rocks and boulders gave way to a lush tropical rainforest. Colobus monkeys swung through the jungle. They seemed to be chattering, This is what you visit Africa to see, dumbass! I knew my journey had ended when I saw something at the ranger station I hadn't seen in six days. A toilet. A filthy, seatless, smelly, broken toilet. I could have kissed it. Could I have made it to the top? I was tired that night, but I probably had the energy. I just couldn't face another five hours of mind-boggling, brain-numbing, mom calls to complain about her knee boredom. Perhaps if I'd had some incentive. Maybe if there was a cash prize on top. Or if it would somehow convince Daniel Day-Lewis to make more movies or Nicolas Cage to make less. But climbing it just to climb it wasn't enough. I didn't need to be the schmuck at a party telling people I conquered Mount Kilimanjaro. My friends would say, Hey, that's great. And think, If Tubby did it, it can't be that hard. The movie Wild ends with Reese Witherspoon finishing her hike at the Canadian border and having a bunch of epiphanies. Life goes on. Time heals all wounds. Taking heroin is bad. I'm not sure why she needed a thousand mile hike to teach her this. My epiphany is that her epiphanies are bullshit. Some people will say anything to avoid going into Canada. But did I learn anything from all this? Was it like high school, where I learned a bunch of stuff I never use, like calculus and Latin? Or was it like college, where I learned nothing and actually forgot calculus and Latin? Yes, I came out of Harvard 
dumber than I went in. But I did learn something from Kilimanjaro. Sometimes it's okay to quit. As Americans were taught, you can do it. Never say die. Nothing is impossible. I'm telling you, you can't do it. Say die. Many things are impossible. We couldn't win the Vietnam War, and we couldn't learn the metric system. Stuff happens. Cut your losses, throw in the towel, try something else. This is why I'm no longer asked to give commencement addresses. But I am living by it. My wife recently wanted to book a trip to Afghanistan, and I said, no, that's crazy. I won't do it. And she agreed, and we went to Pakistan. Someday, I may even quit this podcast, but just for a while. I need to find more stories, go on more bad vacations, get kidnapped and robbed a few more times. Plus, this podcast is costing me a fortune. Trevor, my funny doorman, is making $80,000 an episode. Man, he's got a good agent. One thing I'm not giving up on is mountain climbing. On our next vacation, we plan to conquer the tallest mountains in Florida. Space Mountain, Splash Mountain, Big Thunder Mountain, and a Matterhorn that won't kill you. I'm going to Disney World! I'll bet we can do it all in a day. It's a small world, after all. But I may stretch it out to a week. Poly poly. What Am I Doing Here was written and performed by Mike Reese and produced by Josh Perillo, with Denise Reese as herself. Additional voices by Trevor Morris, Mike's funny doorman. 